We have the privilege to, that God, as David was sharing about, setting aside a feast, a festival for the Jews to remember Passover, which we celebrate as communion. The Lord has allowed us to have a time of reflection every year as well. I like to refer to this as the Feast of Incarnation um, rather than Christmas. That's kind of um, has a, if you go into the, the, the meanings of it, it's, it's really not good. But the Feast of the Incarnation, this is such a, a thrill for me because, to, again, the wonder that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're told that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I just I can't comprehend what it would have been like to live in that day and to actually have seen Jesus and not get it. Because they didn't. They didn't get it. But then after the resurrection, to have what? Got it. Well, I think they did. I think they started to get it. And could you imagine what it would have, been, what it would have felt like when you did get it, and you realized what a privilege you had to have walked in the presence of God on earth? I can't imagine that. And we think, boy, if only I could have lived in that day. Do you know that God doesn't want religion? He wants a, he wants a relationship. And the reality is that you can walk in that joy today. I know that God. It's a mystery. We're going to see this again. It's a mystery. I can't comprehend it. It's beyond my thought processes. But I know that it is true. And as we saw last week, the impact of the incarnation on the revelation of God. And we talked about the fact that the validity of our own testimony is contingent upon the veracity, big words, I understand, the veracity of the testimony of God. If God's word is not true, then my testimony is what? It's false. It's invalid. But I know what happened to me on that night that I, I cried out, God, if you can save this wicked soul, I'm yours. I know my life changed. And I know my life changed based upon the foundation that God came to the earth, he walked amongst men, he died on the cross for my sins, and then he was risen up from the dead. But you can't prove my experience, can you? And so man seeks to attack the revelation of God, thinking that if they can throw holes in God's testimony... They can destroy the plan of God. Can it be done? It can't be done. See, everything we believe, everything we know, is based upon this fact. Today we're going to move into the, um, the impact of the revelation on the redemption of man. And I'm going to light this candle since I went to grab it instead of my clicker. Um, and I'll take care of that as we go on. So last week we looked then. The resurrection, as the resurrection, is the climax and core of the gospel message. So, the incarnation is the foundation and the strength of it. You can't have the resurrection without the incarnation. And we're going to talk about that today, how important it really is. And so we saw in 1 Timothy 3, 
and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Begins with the incarnation, and I know it doesn't end with the, and so Chuck made a good point about the ascension. The ascension really is the climax of the resurrection because everybody, then what? They saw him, 1 Corinthians 15, and he was seen amongst men. And so the reality is that it wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It was a physical resurrection that everybody saw. And then the disciples stood there while he was what? Ascended into heaven, into the clouds. And the angel said, as you have seen him come up, so he's going to what? He's going to return. That means he's not going to be walking on the earth. He's going to come how? In the clouds. Get it? It's pretty simple. God's word is pretty, pretty true if you just take it literally. Okay? People try to spiritualize this and spiritualize this and allegorize this and allegorize this, and they make it into a bunch of nothing. But I think God's smart enough to say what he wants and for us to get it. Yeah? Makes sense? So, 1 John 1, 8, 2 to 2, is our, the, we're again going through 1 John as we're looking at the impact of the incarnation, okay, as we go through Christmas time looking at the impact of the incarnation. And we want to look at this passage. Now, again, remember, when John wrote this epistle, he didn't write verses and he didn't write chapters. He wrote a letter, okay? We get confused sometimes and we stop. When we, we study things, we stop at chapter, you know? We say, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to study chapter one. Well, he didn't stop there and say, oh, I'm going to put a carrot here because I want everybody to do a pause. Now, sometimes that happens in the Psalms and you see the word selah. That means they want you to meditate and think upon what was just stated. That doesn't happen in the epistles, okay? And so I'm going to cross over the boundaries of a chapter here, okay? Because this all goes together. So beginning in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write unto you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John, Starting with the incarnation, that which we have seen, that's which we have looked upon, which are hands of handled of the word of life, right? Starts with the incarnation talking about that which had come to the earth. Life had become alive, from our perspective, right? That which is life from all of eternity came into the earth. We saw it, we bear witness, and we declare unto you that which we have seen and heard, that your joy may be full, complete. That, that you may have this, that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, right? These things, and we're going to talk about that, that, that fun part, okay? The reflection of Christ beginning next week. It's, you're not going to think necessarily next week. It's a lot of fun. But anyways, but it's, it's, it's the joy that we have over the reflection of Christ. But before he gets into those intertwined three things of, of the light, the love, and, and the life, again, he, he builds it with this foundational doctrine. See, because everything we believe and everything that we do is built upon the foundation of what? The Word of God, right? The chief, the core, the, the greatest doctrine that we believe is the redemption of man. Let I me mean, still think about it. God came to the earth. He resurrected and he was ascended. That's exciting. 
But what we miss in all that, which really makes it exciting for us, is what? What he did while he was here, he redeemed us. If he only came to the earth, and if he only died, if he only resurrected, and he only ascended, big whoop, you're still going to die and go to hell. Be eternally separated from him. But it's what he did when he came. It's the reason why he came. So the resurrection may be the core and the climax. The incarnation may be the, um, the, the foundation and the strength. But the redemption of man is the purpose. Now, I understand the chief purpose of man is what? Glorify God. We, we, because the Westminster Convention says so. Okay? Now, I, I believe that the word of God states that whether we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we don't need to go there. However, the reality is that what God did wasn't just for his glory. It's not an egotistical God who's saying, I'm going to do all this just so people will worship me. But God is love. Do you get it? God is love. And God wants his creation, his chief creation, that which was made in his image and his likeness, that's you and me, to have an intricate personal relationship with him which we could not have because of our sin. We're going to talk about that. And so, we are sinners, but Christ came to redeem us. So, our primary two points we're going to be looking at is going to be, first of all, the presence of sin, and secondly, the propitiation of Christ. What about the presence of sin? Well, 1 John chapter 1 very clearly tells us, if you say that you have no sin, you what? You deceive yourself. Self-deception. The deception of self. Well, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. For anyone who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer, he, he, um, be ye hearers of the word, and not doers only. <laughs> be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his face in the glass, he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway he forgets what manner of man he was. And so it says that when we look into God's word and we read it, we need to do what? Do it. Otherwise, we're doing what? Deceiving ourselves. It's not like some of you older folks will get this with um, um, Flip Wilson. Yeah, 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 but what her name was? Geraldine. The devil made me do it, honey. And so... The reality is the devil made you do nothing. The devil can't make you do anything. We're told in James chapter 1, just before that passage, that, that we are drawn away of our own lusts. There are lusts, desires, we'll talk about those next week, that are within us, which we saw in 1 John chapter 2 as Chuck read. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And so that lust is there. It's ever-present with us. We struggle against it. But it's there. And so, a bass has some desires. Yeah, I'm talking about the fish. And it sits there on its little bitty bed, having its own little time, until it sees a grub floating on down. Bill, what's it do? It snatches onto it, doesn't it? It's a bam! And so as fishermen, and women, if you would, what do you like to use as lures or baits? 
that which the bass likes. That's exactly right. And so you wiggle it out there, and the bass takes a hold of it. Does that make sense? That's what goes on. I've got these lusts within me. I'm like that bass sitting on the bed. And Satan is a studier of Bob Corbin. Does that make sense? No, he's probably not Satan himself. He probably has one of his little minions. He's probably one of the lower, lower, lower guys. And he's like, you can handle him. And so he's out there studying me. He says, I got this guy. We got him covered right away. Okay? And so, boom! You know? And we go what? We do what? We do the little bass thing. And we strike at it. Right? Because we want to get it before anybody else does. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Yeah. The, now, we hope that when, the, when you had a bad as a fisherman as me, okay, that doesn't know how to set the hook, and I can spit it out before I'm, I'm, I'm on somebody's frying pan. But I, I, I promise you that Satan and his minions are better than I am when it comes to reeling that bass. Does that make sense? If you say you have no sin, you what? You deceive yourself. Because you're not faking anybody else out. Everybody else looks at you and they see what? <laughs> they see a sinner. You're around anybody long enough and you know one thing for sure. What? They got problems. Because you don't. <laughs> and you know what is a problem with churches? You, gotta, you put a bunch of people with problems together. Who all think that they don't have a problem. But we all do. We're all sinners who understand the redemption that comes from God alone. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. Well, verse 10, the other side of the Oreo cookie says, if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar. Ooh. Now we're not just talking about the deception of self. Now we're talking about, I'm going to look at my word. I have this written. It's not on your sermon note sheets, but I have it here for myself. The denunciation, big word, sorry. The denunciation of God. You make God a liar. You say that God's what? Lying. So the people who say that there is no sin, okay, this universal stuff, okay, is making God a what? A liar. Well, the first thing we see then, the deception, I did put it up there. Look at it, I came back and did it. In the denunciation of God, I wish I would trust myself. Anyways, better not to trust myself, okay? Well, what else do we see? Romans 3.23. Um, David read it this morning when we did communion, right? All have sinned in what? Fallen short of God, glory of God. How many have sinned? All. Are you sure? Does that include you? Yes. I only heard a couple people say yes. The rest I'm not sure. They're still holding out that maybe there's another verse that they haven't found yet that says except for this 10%. Everybody else nodded. Okay, good. <laughs> Romans 5.12. Okay, let's turn there. Romans 5.12. Does anybody want to quote that? Because I know some of you got it. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. All have sinned. Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. I want everybody to turn there, though, because I want to... I talk about this as we go through it, okay? It's only five verses, but still. It could be tedious, but it's a very important point, okay? Because again, David referred during communion about us being Gentiles, right? And so we're not under the what? The law, because we're not Jews, okay? At least that's what would be purported. But look what it says. 
For as many as have sinned, this is beginning at Romans twelve verse or Romans two verse twelve. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish what? Without law. Wait, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. I thought sin was what? Going against the law. We'll talk about that in a second. But it says that if you sin without the law, you're going to what? Perish without the law. And so we go on. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, that's called your conscience, do the things that are in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men. What's he going to judge? What are those? The things that we good. Exactly. You're reading my brain. It's the things that we don't want other people to know. I'm pretty transparent, I, I, I think. I, I like to be open, and you guys can probably tell me what I've told you, at least, is my greatest you know, struggle and sin, right? But I promise you I haven't done, I haven't shared everything with you. Like last week when I gave my testimony, I told you there's a whole lot of my, my, my closet, and, and I, I told you at that time that God allowed me to, to come to the end of myself, but I wouldn't share what it was. We all have our what? Our secrets, our closets. And we're told that in that day, the one who knows everything will open up your closet. And you can fake me out. You can fake your spouse out. You can fake your kids out. You can fake out people in the church. You can fake out your people who work with you. But there's one individual, if you would, you cannot fake out, and that is God. He is the one, we're told in the book of Hebrews, who will judge you according to the thoughts and the intents of your heart. It's a two-edged sword. It's like a scalpel. And he's able to divide us under between the soul and the spirit, between the bones and the marrow. And he's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. First John 3, 4 to 5, back in the book that we are studying, in First John 3, we'll be reading this chapter next week before the message. We read, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, that is Jesus, was manifested to take away our what? Our sin. And in him there is no sin. Remember that when we get to there in a moment. Okay? We know that in him there is no sin. So first of all, this thing we see is that we see the universal nature of man's sin. Okay? Everybody has what? Everybody has sin. Well, the second point goes along with it is the universal consequence of man's sin. Romans 5.12, which we just read, that death is passed on to what? All, because all men have what? Sin. The consequence, we're told, for sin is what? Death. Well, we know that from Romans 6.23. You all know that verse very well, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, the concept of, of death in its origins, where it came from, is the, the term of separation. Okay? So think about death. Physical death, okay? That's because that's what we're talking about, physical death. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die, okay? And so when we think of physical death, we think the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But 
Eve ate the fruit, and she didn't instantly what? Die. Rather, she turned around and gave it to Adam. And after Adam ate it, he didn't turn around and die. Neither did Eve turn around and die. Rather, at that moment, their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked, and they were ashamed, and they made themselves clothing. So they actually had activity. There was no, oh, I hate it. Oh, this is killing me. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm double. I'm dying. Oh, what is going on? Oh, cancer came into the world. Oh, this is awful. You know, from our perspective, we didn't see what? Death. And so, so from one perspective, Satan would love to use it and say what? God's word was what? Not true. But what do we see happen? Immediately, their eyes were opened, and they did what? They closed themselves. They separated themselves. They hid themselves from themselves. And then God comes into the garden, and he walks in a cold day, as he did always with them, right? They were used to it. They, they were expecting it. And the minute God came into the garden, what did they do? They hid. They separated themselves from God. You get it? And then God says to Adam, why are you hiding? Did you eat of that tree? I mean, why you got claws on, man. What's going on here? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? And his response was, it's the woman that you made. The woman that you made. Ain't nothing about me, God. It's this woman. She is this imperfect being that you made, and you gave her to me, so therefore, ultimately, it's what? Your fault. I don't have any blame in this thing at all. Don't we do that? How awful is that? What about you, Eve? It's the serpent that you made. I can't blame Adam because I'm the one to give it to him, so I've got to blame somebody, so I'm going to blame the serpent. Separation began to happen. The first separation was a social separation that we see. Now, physical separation actually was occurring at that moment. Physical death did begin at that very moment. Though they didn't die at that very moment, what we see, the first thing, though, the first occurrence of this death that happened was social death. There was a separation. When we talk about marriages, and I do marital counseling, we talk about that relationship as what? It's dead. No, it should be one flesh. But when they're coming to me for marital counseling, usually the relationship is dead or dying. There's no life. Make sense? And so, so there's death in that. Well, there's also then the next thing we see is that separation from God. Does that make sense? There was no relationship there at all. There was a separation that had occurred. And so we see that easily if you understand the concept of the body, soul, and the spirit. Okay? If I have a heart attack, if I had an aneurysm in my head and, and it burst right now, whatever, if I had a massive heart attack, and I what? Died. I, get it, would not die. We'll talk about that in three weeks from now when we talk about life. My body, though, did what? It ceased to exist on this earth. It ceased to function on this earth. At that moment, at that very moment that my body ceased to function, I would separate from my body. That is death. Get it? There's a separate physical separation, physical death that occurs. The wages of sin is not just physical, but social and spiritual death. I am a body, a soul, and a spirit. And when I sin... And being born a sinner, it already is within me. There is a consequence. And so, Marsha's and I relationship, I know, you think we've got that perfect um, utopian relationship, okay? It may surprise you, every once in a while we have a disagreement. It's not very often. Probably once every two minutes. Anyways, um, 
But, but one thing we understand it on this side of Christ is that there's a what? There's a spiritual war that's going on. And I struggle in my flesh. And there are times when it's not really her issue, it's my issue. Does that make sense? Because of my flesh. Once we get a grip on the universal nature of sin and the universal consequence of sin, it starts to explain a lot of things that are going on in the world. Why do we war amongst ourselves? Because we, we want things. We want more things. And we're selfish. And when you boil that down, that's what? Sin. Well, the wages of sin is death. The ultimate death, though, is the separation of God for all eternity. We refer to that as hell. Okay? Over there when we do the Good News Club, it's called the bad word, the bad place. Because I said that once and they were like, oh, he's cussing. <laughs> so now we've got to refer to the H-E double hockey sticks or the bad place or whatever. But it, hell is a real place, y'all. It's not to be used in a a derogatory way as a curse word. But I think there are times when we are led to, so we're not, we don't talk about these words because we don't want to what? Offend people. People get it. When you talk to them about going to heaven, they get the other side of the coin. See, it's the, you, know, the, you look at a quarter and there's two, two sides. You've got the heads and tails. You know? So do you, are, you, are you saved by receiving Jesus? Or are you condemned by rejecting Jesus? And the answer is what? Yes. It's the same coin, heads and tails. It just all depends on which side of the coin you got. And so when you talk to somebody about wanting them to go to heaven, they instantly get the fact that you're telling them what? Right now, you're going to hell. Now, my heart isn't to judge you and to to condemn you. My heart is to see you join me in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Does that make sense? But they get it. That's okay. It's really okay. I didn't like it when it was impressed upon my heart that I was condemned and going to hell. I cried my eyes out. But it was that knowledge that drove me to my knees before the Lord and asked him for his salvation. If someone doesn't know they're lost, they're not going to look for help. Does that make sense? Matt and I were hunting earlier this week, and he was out in in woods that were innocent at nighttime, become unfamiliar to you, as much as you may know it, okay? And so he was out, and he didn't know where he was. And so I was on the other side of the woods, and I said, and we were talking on the phone, you know, nice technology today. I said, okay, I'm going to put my phone down. I said, I'm going to yell so you can see if you can hear me. It kind of gives you a bearing because you know where I'm at. And so I yelled his name. And I said, did you hear me? He says, yeah, did you yell Matt? I said, yeah, he said, yeah I heard you. And he says, you're at 2 o'clock for me. I said, well, there you go. So you know, you know where I'm at. So that gives you a bearing. Because when you're out there, I've been there, and Greg's not here. He could testify to this. I remember the first time I went at nighttime. I mean, I had markers all along the way. He was very good at helping me. How I missed my markers, I don't know. But all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of the woods. And I have no clue where I'm at. And you know what? I was probably from here to the back door. That's all. It was just so thick. I had no clue where I was. And I yelled out, Greg! <laughs> I should have yelled Jesus. But anyways, it was more practical at that moment to yell Greg. And from about 50 yards away, I hear, hey, Bob, I'm here. <laughs> I had no clue where I was. In the, 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 
the, the adrenaline was just flowing for me because I was lost. But if I wasn't lost, I wouldn't have cried out for help. Do you get it? So if you don't know you're lost, if you don't understand that you're a sinner, and if you don't understand that when you die, you're going to be separated from God for all of eternity, you're not going to call upon him. And the sad thing is, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many there are that go thereat. But narrow is the path that leads into life. And few there be that find it. We don't have an invitation at the end. You guys know that. And I can look around and say, okay, they know the Lord, they know the Lord, they know the Lord. But if you don't, if you've been playing the game, and I went to church for 20-something years and I played a game. And if you're playing a game, I promise you, there's an end to the game. And it may not be when you're 125 years old. None of us have an assurance that we're going home today. I mean, I joke, joke, about having the heart attack or the, or the, the, the brain aneurysm or whatever. But I know of pastors who have died while they're preaching. What a way to go. Preaching the word of God the next time you're in his presence. Okay? And so, we don't have the assurance. We, I mean, I, I think I'm going to be here for the rapture of Christ. I think it's coming in my lifetime. But you know, I, re- I really do believe that. I really do believe that. But I don't know my days. I may go through the portal of death and still meet him. How cool is that? The universal condemnation consequence of man's sin. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. You know that we don't need to go there. That's the great white throne judgment. In that, in that day, you are going to be judged according to the works that are written in the book of works. And everybody will be condemned. Everybody will be condemned. Except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Does that make sense? If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus gives great illustration and great detail about that in Mark chapter 9. It's where the fire dies not, it's where the worm dies not. There's going to be great darkness, separation from God. You're going to be by yourself in this utter darkness, yet you're going to hear others. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be this eternal burning sensation, and there's going to be a sensation of worms eating you for all of eternity. I can't comprehend that. Okay, I am not, you know this well enough. I, I mean, I don't speak on this all the time, okay? So if you know, if you're here for the first time today or whatever, you, you get to hear this, okay? But this is the truth that's in God's word, and I'm not going to hide from it. It's a fact, okay? And, and, and it's that which Jesus came to redeem me from. Does that make sense? That's the exciting part for me. When I realized where I was heading and what Jesus did for me, why shouldn't I worship him? Why shouldn't I adore him for what he has done for me? He has taken that on himself. He who knew no sin became sin, that I might have his righteousness imputed to me. Wow, what an exchange. What a Christmas gift. The propitiation of Christ. What are we told there then? He paid the penalty for our sins. That's what the word propitiation, big word, propitiation, it means to pay for, to become in place of, to pay in place of. He paid the penalty for my sins. Now, How could he do that? First of all, it had to be through the sinlessness of Christ. We talked about this a little bit last week and said we're going to bring it up this week. And the the criticalness 
of the virgin birth of Christ. So, in 1 John chapter 3, we were just there, so hopefully you're still there. Look at verse 5. It says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him what? There is no sin. Okay, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Critical comment. Who's all? Everyone. Give me more details. Uh, Everyone. Everyone what? So my dog is a sinner. Every human, every human is a sinner. Does that make sense? But here we're told that Jesus what? Has no sin. I have a conundrum. It's a seemingly what? A seeming, um, uh, I hate when my brain walks away. Contradiction. But it's not a contradiction. Okay? It's, it's, it, it's something that has the explanation. And the explanation is that which the world does not want to receive. And that is that Jesus wasn't purely what? Human. He was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. He was sinless. Hebrews chapter 2, turn there with me. Beginning verse 16, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to begin at verse 17, actually. It says, Therefore, in all things he had, that is Christ, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being what? Tempted. So, what am I told right here? Before we move on to the next verse. Because they're going to build on each other. What am I told by Christ? He was tempted, like what? Like we are. Okay? He was tempted in every way, such as we are. Now, I know that there's, there's, there's debate on this one, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. Okay? Okay? The, the word here means to be tried, tempted, troubled. Okay? And you cannot be that unless there's the ability for you to what? To fall. It, you can put a donut. This is... For real. You, I mean, for those of you who knew me years ago, my, my favorite dessert in all the world was a Boston cream donut. Okay? But you can put a Boston cream donut in front of me right now, and it is not a temptation to me at all. Ten years ago, I'd want to scarf up the whole dozen. Now I'm allergic to milk. I don't want a part of it at all. It's poison to me. Does it make sense? And so there is no temptation for me at all if I see a Boston cream donut. I look at it and I mourn. <laughs> but it is no temptation for me to take it. Because I don't want the consequence of that action. Does that make sense? Okay. So there has to be some ability for me to fall to that for it to be really a temptation. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're told here, that he had to be, if he was going to be the propitiation, see what it says, big terms, if he's going to be the propitiation, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in that, verse 18, that he was himself suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. 
And so if his temptation means nothing, then your temptation means nothing because they're built upon the same. Do you see that in verse 18? Okay? You've got to interpret in context. Okay? It's not used one way here, and then all of a sudden two words later it's used somehow differently. Turn now to chapter 14, verse 15. Okay? This is at the end of the, um, the area where we know that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two of the sword. Okay? And so that word that's talking about there, I believe, is Jesus Christ. The W should be capitalized probably. But it goes on in verse 15 and says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. We just read that. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The word of God declares that Jesus Christ is what? Sinless. He is without sin. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 26 and 27. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. If you want to know what a definition of his sinlessness is, we're going to, we're going to be told it. It has become higher than the what? Heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Even the priests in that day had to offer up sacrifices for who? For themselves. But Jesus didn't. He only had to offer up the sacrifice for who? For us. And he only had to do it once. And then he sat down. Because of his perfection. 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19, you can go there, but we're told very clearly there that we are not redeemed with silver and gold, but we're redeemed with what? The precious blood of Christ. Okay? And so our redemption comes through the blood of Jesus. Okay? Here's the deal. Bringing that the incarnation, the virgin birth, through. If Jesus had not been born of a virgin, Joseph would have been his father. If Joseph was his father, then based upon Romans chapter 5, and elsewhere, then Jesus would be a sinner. If Jesus was a sinner, he would not be undefiled. We just saw that in Exodus 12, right? That the, the, the Passover lamb had to be what? Without blemish. Jesus wouldn't be without blemish. He wouldn't be undefiled. He could not then be your sacrifice. If he wasn't your sacrifice, you're still what? In your sins. If you're still in your sins, you are still condemned. And still under the law. And you are condemned under the law. And there is no joy to the world, but rather condemnation. The sinlessness of Christ, and secondly, then the sacrifice of Christ. 1 John 3, again, we were there, so go back and we're kind of flipping between 1 John and other passages. But 1 John 3, verse 16, it's a kind of a rehash of John 3, 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. By this we know love. How? He laid down his life for the brethren. Continue on to chapter 4. What do we read about God who is love? Verse 9. 
In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ came with a purpose. He was born to die upon Calvary. We should have picked that one close. I like meekness and majesty anyway. He was born to die. Now, the reality is that we know there are two things uh, sure in life, right? Death and taxes. Good. You guys got that, okay? And so we, we like the rah, rah, rah about the taxes, you know? But the, the first part is what? Death. The moment you were born, you began a journey toward the day of your death. You can't avoid it. There have been many throughout the ages who have sought to avoid it, trying to find the fountains of youth and all this kind of stuff. There are books and novels written about these things. You know, everybody wants to find this fountain of youth, and even when they're in their, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, they want to start, keep feeling like they're what? Teenagers. I think like a teenager, so therefore I need to look like a teenager. I need to act like a teenager. No, you need to act your age. Anyways, and, and so, but, but it's an amazing thing. Death is going to occur. Jesus Christ came to die. But he came to die in my place. He came to die in your place. The impact of the incarnation is huge. And so we read, and we've been, we're memorizing earlier this year, the book of Colossians. Oh, oh, I forgot the second part. Oh, this is huge. He destroyed the power of Satan. Sorry about this. 1 John 3, 8. Let me, let me read this. I forgot. This is talking about impact part. 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the power of Satan. It's just an amazing thing. And so um, this, this concept of power, and I don't have time to go through this, but the, in Hebrews chapter 2, we're talk, told about the power of Satan. And the power of Satan is death, that he brings fear. And, and, and we fear the grave, we fear death. And so, therefore, he has no more power over us because I'm not, I don't have to be afraid of death anymore. You know those big no-fear things that are on the back of trucks and all this kind of stuff? No fear. That ought to be us. We live without fear. My greatest fear is I'll, I won't die, but I'll want to be in a quadriplegic, you know, and, and, and I live, live in this thing. But, so I don't, necessarily, I don't necessarily fear death. I fear the what? The process. I've never gone through the, gate, the portal before. So I'm not looking forward to the process, but I'm looking forward to the other side. Does that make sense? Okay? There's no fear anymore. Why? Not only has Christ overcome the grave, he's overcome the destroyer. The one who would like to destroy. Mark chapter 1, you can look at these later, but this is the, the, um, um, the passage where he's in the synagogue and, the, and the, the evil spirit cries out to him and says, did you come to, to, to destroy us? This is really a key word. To destroy us before the time. Because... The word there is Apollyon. And so the, the names for Satan in, in the book of Revelation is Abaddon and Apollyon. Abaddon is the Hebrew term. Apollyon is the Greek term, and it means destroyer. And so this, this is just so funny. I mean, it's really it was one of these moments where it's ir irony, you know, and I love the irony that's in God's word. This evil spirit is using this term back at God. Did you come to be the destroyer before the time? 
Did you come to destroy us before the time? They know what their end is. They're all going to be worth thrown into the pit. And so that's the concept of this destroyer, okay? So Jesus came to destroy the destroyer. Isn't that kind of cool? Okay? You got, so I'm thinking naval here, okay? Okay, I'm, I'm thinking naval. I'm thinking big destroyer, right? And what's the purpose of a destroyer? Mr. Navy son, to destroy. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's got big old, you know, cans on and everything, right? And so what's the purpose of a sub? To destroy the destroyer. <laughs> Jesus is my sub. He destroys the destroyer. Do you get it? He has no power over me anymore. There's no fear. Oh, man, there's a destroyer out there. I could care less. I got, I got, I've got this, 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 whatever you call it over me, this defensive mechanism that he has no power over me. None. As long as I'm walking in the power of Christ. Colossians 1. This is where I'm going to read. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. It's one act. When did it happen? He delivered us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love. In whom we have what? Redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you say you have no sins, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. The other side of the Oreo cookie? If you say you have no sin, you make God a liar, and his word is not in you. But that cream, sweet, sugary substance in the middle, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. And to what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All of it. There is not an unrighteousness that he can't cleanse you from. All you have to do is what? Acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner and that you deserve to go to hell. I don't care how bad you are. I don't care. I can tell you how bad and wicked I was, but I don't want to go there. And I can promise you, like Paul, I'm the chief of all sinners. And if God can save me, he can save you. And that's why he came. That's what the incarnation was all about. Emmanuel, God with us. He came and he was born as a baby in a, in a, in a, in a manger, in a stable, man. I mean, not as a king. He was the king. And he did that for me and for you. Have you accepted God's free gift of salvation? If so, have you only treated his precious gift as a cheap fire insurance? How sad. When we just say, oh, well, I just want to get in. I just want... You probably aren't. If you're treating it that way, and if that's what your attitude was, you probably aren't just sliding in. Okay? Or have you appropriated the results of Christ's destruction of the power of Satan? In what area of your life do you need to begin to appropriate that power even more? Is there finally a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's take in our, our bulletin, um, in the insert, there's the song Meekness and Majesty. It talks about this mystery of, of the Godhead that is just so mind-boggling. Uh, as you look, turning there, I want to read it. It says, Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity. In perfect harmony, the man who was God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity. He kneels in humility and washes our feet. 
Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross, suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice. And as they crucify, he says, Father, forgive. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible. Love indestructible and frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, he lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is your God. Let's sing this together.